Welcome to the Olmstead Salon podcast. My name is Dusty Brown and I am the host of the Olmstead Salon. We're the arts and culture outreach over at Calvary St. George's Church in New York City. And our mission is to explore life through culture and conversation. Now, I sometimes have people ask me, you know, what does that mission have to do with the church or how, how are those two things, how do those two things correspond? And if you've ever been to Calvary St. George's on a Sunday morning, two words that you'll hear quite frequently are law and gospel. Law being the thing that forces us to take an honest look at ourselves and the gospel being the thing that gives us a chance to to really ponder the mystery of grace, or as uh, the term has been said before, one-way love. And so at the Olmsted Salon, we look to explore these two words uh, with a more cultural vernacular. We believe that things like grace and mercy can't be fully understood until we have a, a, a deeper understanding of the realities of life, of the realities of our own brokenness, and ultimately of the realities of our own need. Every third Friday of the month, the Olmsted Salon has a different speaker or a different event that explores specifically um, some of these some of these aspects of life under the law that we're describing. And in February, we're hosting our very own Reverend Jim Monroe, who, after being in Vietnam in the 60s, came back to America and was very disillusioned with the way that the Vietnam War was being sold to the youth of America and ultimately joined a, a veterans group called Veterans Education Project to really give a transparent and honest look at the realities of war. So we'll be talking to Jim about some of these themes and some of the things he'll be discussing in his third Friday. And then right after that, uh, we're talking to our Jazz in the Cave guests this now. But first, here's the Reverend Jim Monroe. Thank you, Dusty. Good to be here. Now, Jim, you are uh, a, a, a recent hire here at Calvary St. George's Church from Massachusetts, right? That's right. I uh, live in Springfield, which is about an hour and a half west of Boston in the Berkshires. Uh, I retired after uh, many years as an Episcopal priest serving in a church this past spring. And now in my retirement, I've got the privilege of coming down here three days a week to help out at Calvary St. George's. Oh, that's fantastic. And we're, we're so glad that you're here. Um, you're going to be our guest uh, in the next third Friday at the Olmsted Salon, which will be this coming uh, third Friday. It's February 19th. And um, interestingly, one of the things you're going to be talking about is war and your experience in the Vietnam War. When I was blown up on February 23, 1969, at 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, the fella who threw those two grenades, uh, a North Vietnamese soldier, uh, the grenade that wounded me and killed the fella beside me, uh, was not um, an evil uh, person. Uh, I assumed that he was kind of like me, that he had a mom and a dad, maybe a girlfriend, maybe a wife and kids. And we live in this world where a couple of ordinary people can be placed in a situation where they do unspeakably um, terrible things to one another. So that my ministry and my faith has been partially informed by uh, the awareness that human beings can be unbelievably awful to one another and that awareness how does that how does that inform your uh 
your faith structure? So with this experience of the reality of the brokenness of the human spirit and um, my, my faith is uh, fundamentally formed by uh, a yearning to respond to that pain and that brokenness and to look at for some grace, some hope, some peace, some healing. And uh, so my ministry, I, I think, is centered on mm-hmm. that. I mean, thank you for asking me that question. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Looking at Vietnam in an honest way, it seems hopefully will open us up to stuff like, I mean, you mentioned grace before, and it seems to me that experiencing grace only comes from looking at life in an honest way. And I've also heard you, you know, talk about your frustration with the way that Vietnam is portrayed in what might not be an honest way. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? I was excited to join the Marine Corps and to go to Vietnam. Um, I'd seen Rambo um, in the movies, and so I knew that I would never be killed or wounded. Um, I knew that I could wear a bandana around my forehead and stand up in the face of a hundred North Vietnamese soldiers shooting at me, and I could fire back one arrow with a grenade on it, and they'd all fall down dead. I'm being a little ridiculous, but um, uh, I'd heard the wonderful music that swelled when the heroes went to war. And so I knew I wouldn't be killed. I knew I wouldn't be injured. I knew I wouldn't be afraid. And um, it was going to be very exciting. And then uh, as of February 23, 1969, that all changed. I was not prepared. Apart from being wounded, uh, the guy next to me killed, I was not prepared for the emotion of fear. I had no... uh, preparation for the power of fear to override all other emotions. Uh, And along with fear came the other unexpected emotion in the hospital when the shock wore off of shame. Mm. I was ashamed of being afraid. And so uh, in the reality of that experience, um, there was further... um, impetus for a ministry that could speak to the realities of those experiences. Well, we're very excited to hear uh, your talk. It's going to be the third Friday, February 19th at 730 in the cave at St. George's Church. Reverend Jim Monroe, thank you very much for, for being here. Thank you, Dusty. I'm looking forward to it. You're listening to a little sample from one of our next guests. This is December Song from Alex LaRoe. And Alex is part of a group called This Now. This Now will be performing as part of Jazz in the Cave on February 12th. And St. George's music director Alex Wynn, and also the host and curator of Jazz in the Cave, interviews them and talks about their process, their exploration of life through their creative vocation, and their constant pursuit of the moment, both as artists and for us as audience members. We're here today with Alex LeRae, Jonathan Raganese, and Chris Zuar who are leading an 11-piece chamber ensemble called This Now on February 12th for our Jazz in the Cave series. We understand this is your first concert, and we're excited and honored to have you. Um, to start, um, could you 
the three of you just tell me a little bit about yourselves, uh, your, your musical backgrounds, and how you came to know each other. Alex, could you start? Sure. Thanks so much, Alex and Dusty, for having us here. Um, uh, we're really excited to be here. Uh, and yeah, so I uh, grew up in Tarpon Springs, Florida, which is near Tampa, uh, Clearwater on the west coast of Florida. And I went uh, for a couple of years to the University of North Florida in Jacksonville, which is where I met you, Alex. It's where our musical relationship and friendship began. Um, and then I finished my undergrad studies at the New England, New England Conservatory of Music, which is where I met Chris. Uh, and then finished my studies, graduate studies at the Manhattan School of Music, which is where I met Jonathan. Chris? Thanks, guys. Pleasure to be here. Um, I grew up in Long Island, New York. Started playing trumpet um, probably around eight or nine fourth grade or something like that whenever you take up general music um continued with that throughout high school got into composition a little bit later in high school um and then went on to new england conservatory music to study trumpet initially ended up switching majors after my freshman year for a variety of reasons but uh finished at nec with a degree in composition met alex there then actually went on to the Manhattan School of Music two years after I graduated. So uh, Lorraine and I didn't quite uh, continue on the same path. But uh, at MSM, I eventually met Jonathan, and we've been hanging out ever since. So, yeah. And Jonathan? Um, I was born in New Cumberland, Pennsylvania. And it's a small town right outside of Harrisburg, the capital. Um when I was about five, I started playing piano. I think I always liked music, um, and I kind of knew that my grandfather was a guitarist and composer, uh, my dad's dad. And so uh, when I started playing piano, I was you know, doing all the normal things, and then by the time I got to fourth grade, I picked up the saxophone. And um, yeah, long story short, practiced a bunch, moved to New York when I was 18 which uh, took me about four or five years to wake up and realize where I was. And um, I was at the Manhattan School of Music for six years. I studied um, saxophone for undergraduate and then composition for my master's. And yeah, like they said, that's how these guys came into my life. And uh, since then, I've been writing a bunch and playing and uh, involved in a lot of different kinds of things, with educational endeavors and writing for young ensembles and different kinds of things great well um maybe if you guys could uh all, the three of you or whoever would like to speak talk about the catalyst for starting this group this now and tell us a little bit about it uh the ensemble was an idea uh that grew out of our spending quite a bit of time together and sharing our own uh, stories and experiences in in uh the musical world um Alex and I both being saxophonists who write music and Chris being a full-time composer and doing other various jobs in the music world. We all kind of realized we liked similar things uh, about music and in terms of different kinds of style and aesthetic. Um, and then as we started to hang more and more, that became stronger and we started to grow more toward one another's tastes in a certain way. Um, and one of the things that we realized I wouldn't say pretty quickly, but over a period of time was that if we wanted to 
to make music the way that we wanted to make music, uh, that we would need to do it for ourselves and not wait around for um, a certain opportunity here with so-and-so and another opportunity there with so-and-so and, oh, maybe it'll be what we want in the end. And because also we're all improvisers and we grew up in a improvised tradition of, of uh, how you play music. Um, but when we all started to compose, we realized that we also liked, uh, I guess, what I call exact music or classical music or whatever you want to call it. And there's always a weird relationship between those two worlds. And uh, I think ensembles still kind of walk that line of a strange relationship when it comes to improvisation and exact music. And the industry certainly does. Um, so we said, well, if we make our own ensemble and we handpick the people, some improvisers and some non-improvisers um, who are all like-minded, then we can do whatever we want. And so here we are. Could you speak a little more about the style and aesthetic and the taste that you guys kind of share? Well, to add what Jonathan said, um, we all come from an improvised background traditionally. Our, I guess our training is in jazz. Um, but at least for me, I, I found classical music pretty early, early on probably when I started playing the trumpet, eight or nine, whenever that was, um, and continued finding new musics throughout my musical education. So I, I think we're coming from a variety of places musically, with a variety of influences and interests, and that's really what the ensemble is to us, is, is a culmination of all these things, and, and we don't think of the ensemble necessarily as one thing more as as a collection of of all of our interests in music do you have anything to add alex i think uh chris nailed it on the head pretty much uh for me uh, i was actually trained classically as a saxophonist before i started uh getting into the world of jazz i didn't start uh learning about jazz until i was maybe seven or eight years into my uh, studies of saxophone so uh it was a lot for me to learn and make that transition into the jazz world but ultimately i feel that uh i feel that it has helped me not only in in my uh, development as a saxophonist but also uh in my love for music and how i was involved in the classical world from the very beginning um that passion for that music has never left and to be able to have the opportunity to combine the two i think is a really special thing you know your the description of the, the group that you sent me was like i guess intentionally kind of open Right, but is there any way you could like uh, describe like tangibly or how this concept kind of translates into like what you're doing with the ensemble? Anyway, well, I think, and this has to do a lot, I think, with you know how the music industry is today and how we like to categorize things, and it makes it easier for people to digest and understand different categories of music as far as this sounds like this, uh, this sounds like this, okay, this is influenced by this. Um, we didn't want to feel pigeonholed by by those categorizations, you know, so it's easy to say like, okay, this is a chamber ensemble, so it's going to kind of sound like this, and oh, it has some jazz musicians, so it's probably going to sound like this too, but we really didn't want to limit ourselves to that, you know, we, uh, our whole idea was to, as Jonathan was saying, uh, write more through composed compositions of exact music um, and incorporate elements of improvisation into the compositions that have actual meaning and not just, okay, here's a solo section for people to go off on for a while. But we really wanted every element of the composition to have uh, 
direct meaning and purpose uh, within that. So uh, we chose this particular combination of instruments because we felt like it was diverse enough for us to be able to capture different sounds and different timbres uh, from the different instrument families. And um, we're just kind of going with it. We don't really have any preconceived notions of what we want it to sound like, um, but we just want to write music that we uh, enjoy and then hope everybody enjoys listening to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, just to kind of for for listeners to know, um, the ensemble is consists of brass, woodwinds, and strings plus bass and drums. So there's no piano in this group. So like, you know, what was, you know, part of your decision to not include a pianist? Hmm. I think that was a very simple um, decision to have a mobile ensemble. Hmm because uh, very often there are performance venues that don't have a piano. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if we all could bring our instruments to the gig, then we're in business. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, and also, uh, since we're dealing with so many musicians, um, I think it, it was, yeah, it really for mobility to be able to make it one place to another. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, the piano is a very distinct uh, sound. Mm-hmm. And um, it's... Um, the other issue is if we're going to be writing specifically for a piano, well, and then if we if we do stuff to the inside of the piano, let's say we prepare it or something like this, sticking nails in there or hammers and things like this, then if we get to a gig and there's not a piano, we can't do that on an electric piano. So it's like not as versatile as if we have a violin, it's always going to be a violin, and if we want to do something to it, uh, we'll always get that desired effect. So I think that that also would present a sort of limitation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and just quickly, I was thinking about it when Alex was talking about <clears throat> why we um, spoke about it in a certain way. I don't know if that'll be available for people to read, uh, however ambiguous it might sound as a paragraph. Um, yeah, the way that I, I think that music as an experience in our culture has lost some value, that it, it, it has become kind of, a, in a sense, another, another uh, thing to consume in a materialistic fashion. And so we have to name it things. And we also, it's easier than to say, well, I'm some eclectic collection of all these consumer products Mm -hmm. um, so that we can find more consumers to be interested in it rather than find people who want to have a valued experience of music, Mm -hmm. which, uh, yeah, I don't know. Not to be, not to have any kind of direct comment on how we deal with music in our culture, but you know, it's, it's always a commodity. It's never an experience. Period. Yeah. That's the word I was thinking commodity. Yeah. yeah it, it just, that's just what it is. Mm-hmm. And as the older that I get, the more I realize that I've been bred in this idea, but I do not have to do that. If I believe music to be something more valuable as a human experience, then I have to try to figure out what that is. So I think this ensemble also allows us to say, maybe we can reach that desired space whatever it might be and that's the coolest thing is that we really don't know what it is yeah yeah. i mean honestly at this moment we sit here talking about it we still don't know what each other has completely come to the table with for you know the first concert so cool we'll find out and then we'll see what it comes out to be you know we all trust each other enough that we're going to have music on the table it's going to be something musical and something enjoyable to participate in and to to listen to but in terms of the details we we don't know you know yeah and that's also uh, an exciting thing yeah that's like the beauty like the openness that you talk about 
and then like bringing it to the table with the audience as well. Like that, that type of uh, interaction. Yeah. Like you guys are, we're all experiencing this together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and even as like a program coming from a programming standpoint, like I've done like a book to jazz club or, um, you know, doing th- this series or something like, yeah, you feel this, uh, uh, need to categorize things and say, well, you're going to get this here. Well, and then this is this and, you know, and, and, uh, and, uh, it was just very interesting. I just to when you guys sent your description, like it, it stood out to me. Yeah. We spent but some it, time on that description yeah, yeah. yeah, and not to be annoying, but yeah, to yeah. be clear. Yeah. Um, it's great. Yeah. Well, I, um, I guess, I don't know if this is like, you know, over categorizing, but, you know, to ask about like any types of influences that you might have in terms of artists or groups, um, you know, is that something you found the loaded question? Yeah. <laughs> no, let's see. We had breakfast on the way here and we decided that we weren't going to talk about influences. Um, but okay. Maybe we can depending on a certain way. Um, I have a quick question. Uh, so you had, you, you just said you had breakfast and you, talked about the or you decided that you wouldn't talk about influences so why did you come to that conclusion is that is that talked out is that uh do you feel like that's not important uh is that something you're sick of talking about it's something i'm certainly sick of hearing about and why is that because who cares what somebody's influence was you know i think it 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 means that somebody's not seeing what the individual's offering and it comes along the same lines as the commodity driven gathering of like well this person is a rich, you know, melting pot of this, that, and the other thing. Well, okay, but what the hell are they giving me? Right. You know, what am I experiencing with that person? And we do this, uh, you know, we were kind of saying that when people offer something, you just take it. You come to your own conclusions. We don't really have to tell you that I might like Schoenberg. Schoenberg and Puccini. Mm-hmm. Well, why do I like those two guys? They don't mean that, you know, they're kind of different. Or, but I also like Sonny Rollins. Who cares? You know, I mean, yeah, sure. Uh, um, I, we could sit here and name whatever. You could talk about David Byrne versus John Cage. Great. <laughs> Who cares? They're great. And they all mean something to me, of course, but they might not mean something to somebody else. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah, wholeheartedly. Yeah. I mean, that's really the conclusion that we collectively came to. That's amazing. Um, yeah, and, and our and our tendency to also romanticize about mm. history mm-hmm. and the way things were and the way things are now um, in a variety of ways. So I think, as Jonathan said, we're really just trying to present something and have people um, come to it openly, hopefully. In the jazz tradition, you know, there's always... Yeah, there's always this kind of emphasis on the history and the romanticizing... And, and saying, oh, you, who you checked out and, you know, and, you know, all this. Uh, now, how does, I mean, that's such a big part of the jazz tradition. Like, how do you, what are your views on that? I think kind of going along with uh, the consumerism we were speaking about earlier, how people look for validation by association of they say, uh, okay, this person sounds like this. And everybody knows that this person from the past is this has this certain stature so this must be great because they're associated with this with this name this person sounds like john coltrane this person sounds like brahms um and in our ensemble i you know it's very easy for us to say like okay as jonathan was saying we're influenced by these people and all of a sudden people will be like oh this is gonna kind of 
fall into that realm and it goes back to the categorization we were talking about earlier um but like we said we're trying to avoid that and uh the message that we're trying to i guess ultimately give is that we just want people to experience this and think for themselves and just live in the moment and take in this music and like the experience or not like the experience but that's the whole point of living i think uh and not to be influenced or kind of swayed in one direction or the other by uh other people's opinions or influences so um this idea of kind of being in the moment with your music and and uh having uh having a response to it that might be um something that's not uh, intellectual response it might be more of a uh, an emotional response. I don't know what what you would call it. I'm, I'm interpreting what you're saying now, but it seems to me like your name might speak to that too. The name of your of your group, this now. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, when we were figuring out what the name of the ensemble would be, we spent a lot of time brainstorming different ideas, uh, and kind of going back to the uh, idea of the description that we gave you for the concert of how we really just wanted it to be open ended and not have any strings attached to you know what we were going to offer for the concert i think we wanted to take a similar approach with the actual name of the ensemble as that's a very uh, important aspect that most people see they see the name and then you know they can draw their conclusions or they they can kind of paint a better picture uh based off of that um so we decided on this now uh you know everything's lowercase and uh the reason was basically for what we've been talking about is that we just really wanted it to be an experience of you're here, experience this music, enjoy it for yourself in the moment, and uh, you know just be there with us. We said we would mention no influences, and I would not consider this a musical influence. Um, and I actually wouldn't say that he's a, well, yeah, he's an influence in, in a positive way. But I think at the point in time that we chose the name for the group, uh, we thought about many various things uh, I don't remember who brought it to the table or how it came about those specific two words with the comma which I think is very important um, the idea of this now uh, in effect comes as a as a excerpt from a quotation um, from John Cage uh, and I would say in terms of influence I, I feel if there's if you could figure out one person that I think is safe to name as an influence, John Cage might be the person because he's the one that represents the idea of non-influence and the breaking off point of all of that and the idea that you don't need any of that or that maybe you do, but it doesn't really mean anything. And, and more importantly, that um, everything is a part of what you're doing. Right, which comes from certain religious philosophies that he was involved in, but I would consider him, in terms of in his influence, much more philosophical than, quote, musical. Um, and that's where this now comes from. Uh, I'm Directly, I think, from in his book, famous book, Silence, um, from those collection of writings. Yeah. Anything to add, Chris? Maybe just to add, I think it also references the idea of being conscious and present in any given moment, um, which is a rather challenging thing to do sometimes in our society, in any society for that matter. Um, but yeah, it's just the idea of taking something in the present and dealing with it.
as opposed to bringing in a whole slew of other preconceived notions or ideas about what one given thing is. Well, the concert is Friday, February 12th, with sets at 7.30 and 9.30, and it's going to be held in the cave, which is the underground space under St. George's Church in Manhattan, which is uh, the entrance will be through the courtyard at 209 East 16th, 16th Street, which is just east of 3rd Avenue, right near Stuyvesant Park. Um, and there's just a $10 cover, and uh, we hope you guys can join us. And uh, I just want to thank you guys for being here today. It was really... Thanks for having yeah, us. Yeah. Great conversation. So, And uh, looking forward to the concert. Well, there you have it. This has been the Olmstead Salon podcast. And on behalf of Alex Wynn, I'm Dusty Brown. We want to thank This Now. And we hope that you'll join us for Jazz in the Cave, February 12th at 7.30 and 9.30. And we also want to thank Jim Monroe. Jim will be speaking at the Olmstead Salon on February 19th, the third Friday of February at 7.30. For more information and for future shows, please check out our website at www.olmsteadsalon.com. And uh, thanks for listening.